0: All right. Well, good morning, and uh, welcome again to Grace. Let me add my welcome to Nathaniel's and to Stevens. Uh, really appreciate uh, the you guys being here. Those of you who are in the room. Uh, Katie tried to be here this morning, but uh, the streets were not plowed in the city, so she is stuck in the snow. I hope she's out by the time by now. And Nathaniel filled in on thirty minutes' notice. So thank you for Nathaniel for uh, leading worship at uh, such last minute notice. Um, but yeah, here we are. In, Genesis chapter 16 with the story of Hagar. It's a great retelling of it. Thank you, Stephen. Well, let me uh, turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. You can either open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. It's printed for you in the bulletin, um, or it's on the website. You can click through, and it's right there. So Genesis chapter 16, this is is God's Word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant, Whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power to do as you see please, as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her. And she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Therefore, the well was called beer le Roy It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray before we look at this passage. Our great God, we come to this uh, this powerful story of a dysfunctional family. And we pray that as we look at these characters, and especially, God, as we look to and uh, to you, that you would teach us from your word. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, we have been studying the life, the story of Abram or Abraham as he will be called in the next chapter. If I slip up and say Abram or Abraham, uh, I'm probably going to mix up uh, Hagar and Sarai today as well. So try to to stay with me. Um, But so far in the life of Abraham, we have seen moments of great faith. We've also seen moments of failure on Abram's part. And last week, if you were with us, uh, Nick Perrin, president of TEDS and Trinity International University was with us preaching uh, and appropriately, he said in Genesis 15 that that is a top 10 chapter in the Bible. If you were to rank, the t- you know, have a list of top 10 chapters in the Bible, that Genesis 15 would be in uh, that that top 10 list, and that's certainly true. I mean, we saw that God came to Abraham, that He makes a covenant, a personal relationship with Abraham, uh, that God Himself passes through the parts, signifying that He will that His skin is in the game. He's going to give Himself, and then that great statement of faith that Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 is so lovely and so important. And then next week we're going to look at Genesis 17, which in many ways is a continuation of Genesis 15 because there the covenant was consummated in chapter 15, but we have the sign and the seal of the covenant in Genesis 17. Actually, Genesis 17 points forward even to our own practice of baptism. So Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 are super important. Genesis 17 is probably, it may not be in the top 10, but it's in the top 20 okay, chapters in uh, the Bible. But what about Genesis 16? What about our passage this morning? In some ways, it feels like a brownstone. You go to New York City, you see these brownstones between massive skyscrapers. Genesis 15 and 17 are the skyscrapers. And it feels like, although I'll argue to the contrary, that Genesis 16 is like the brownstone between them because here's the reality all writing is selective we think that Moses I think that Moses wrote the book of Genesis and he chose what to include and what to exclude and here's the question I have for us as we look at this text this morning why does he include this story why is Genesis 16 in the Bible okay now we've already seen Abram fail Abram's going to fail in this passage as we will see but we've already seen that In chapter 12. In fact, we're going to see Abram fail again in chapter 20. So that part, his character flaws, have already been established, okay? We also know that Hagar seems to have no larger part of the scheme of redemption. Her offspring do not become the Messiah. Her offspring don't even become the prophets of God. I mean, why is this story here? I think there's a legitimate case that you could be made, that you could drop Genesis 16 from the biblical record, And besides some of the things we'll learn today, you wouldn't lose anything about redemptive history. I mean, somebody can maybe challenge me afterwards, but I don't know what you would lose if this story was missing. So why is this story? Why is Genesis 16 in the Bible? What is it that we can learn? Why it's very intentional. The writer's obviously put it here. What is it that he wants us uh, to learn? And so what I want to do this morning is to get to that question of why is this story here. I simply want to look at the four characters in this story. This is in some sense profiles and faith and failure. I want to look at the four characters of this story and see what the author has us to learn. And so first let's look at Sarah. Sarai, Sarah, Abram's wife. And the first thing we learn about Sarah, and we already know this a little bit, is that she is unable to have children. That's what we learn in these opening verses And that would have been a source of deep pain and deep shame, especially for a woman in the ancient Near East, where the only thing that mattered to her in that time that gave status and worth to her life was the ability to bear children, specifically sons. And she is unable to do that. From verse 3, we know that this is 10 years after this whole Abram and Sarah saga has begun. We know from chapter 17 that Sarah would be 75 years old at the time of chapter 16, 75 years old. So imagine this, for the last 10 or 11 years, uh, excuse me, 10 or 11 years before this story, God had appeared to Sarah's husband, not to her note. God never speaks directly to Sarah that we have on record. But he speaks to Sarah's husband and says to Sarah's husband, "A remove to the land of promise. And so Sarah, she follows her husband to the land of promise. She gives up her home life. She gives up her friends. She gives up her status. She gives up everything goes to a place where she has no status, doesn't even know the language. And now it's 10 years later. She's now 75 years old, past childbearing age. She's given up everything. And to her mind, she has gained nothing. It is not hard to imagine that she is angry and or in pain. And then... There's this socially accepted practice, practiced in the ancient Near East. Archaeological records attest to this that is socially acceptable. There's this practice for a woman to give her servant girl to her husband and the child of that union would be the legitimate heir. And in an age where the only inheritance that mattered was children, to do what she did was the common thing. It was the sensible thing. What Sarah does is sensible, okay? But the problem is It's not trusting God. Sarah is not willing to wait upon the Lord. And that is her sin. Look with me at verse 3 and hear closely these verbs. Verse 3, Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. Does that language sound familiar? It's the language of Eve in Genesis chapter 3, the original sin. She took the fruit, took and gave to her husband, Adam, This is an echo of the original sin. She's tired of waiting, and she takes things into her own hands. She wants to control her own destiny. But it's not just the echo of the first sin. It is the essence of all sin. Not trusting God's goodness, not trusting God's promise, not trusting God's timing. You see, Sarah's sin is a failure of patience. And even beneath a failure of patience, it is a failure to trust God in his timing, in his promises, in his goodness. When God is not working on our timetable, how do we respond? Maybe today you want to be married. Maybe you want your marriage to be better. Maybe you've lost your job or you don't have the job that you want. Maybe like Sarah, you're waiting on a child. Maybe you're facing what I call the silent epidemic of miscarriages. Maybe there's a chronic pain or a terrible diagnosis. The temptation is to forsake God and his promises and take things into our own hands. The risk of course is that we end up hurting the people around us as Sarah's sin does. Now Sarah's failure is a failure of trust. It's a failure of patience. But before we move to her husband's sin, the failure of courage, I want to look a little interlude here about Egypt. It's real interesting, a little interlude about Egypt. Both verse 1 and verse 3 go out of their way to point out that Hagar was an Egyptian. Uh, possibly and most likely, in fact, she's part of the hall that Abram took when he left, uh, left Egypt in chapter 12 of Genesis. She probably was part of that. And in verse 7, the reference to Shur, Shur is basically between where Abram lived and Egypt. She's going back to her homeland, back to Egypt. Now, if Moses wrote... Genesis, which I believe he did, he is writing these books of Exodus. He's writing these books for the Exodus generation. Who's the Exodus generation? The Exodus generation are the people who have left their slavery in Egypt. This is 400 years into the future. They've left the slavery in Egypt, and they're always tempted. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt, and that's what they're always bothering. about. Can we go back to Egypt? The Egypt option. You see, the Egypt option is a constant temptation for God's people whether it's Abram fleeing the famine to the supposed fertility of Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, whether it's Lot choosing the Jordan River Valley because, quote, it's like Egypt and its fertility in chapter 13, or here with Sarah turning to a fertile and nubile Egyptian to solve her problem. There is always a temptation to choose the fertility of Egypt over God's promise. And whenever someone chooses the Egypt option, the consequences. Are disasters. Abram almost loses his wife. Lot loses his way. And in this episode, there's a wedge driven in the marriage of Abram and Sarah. Friends, there's always an Egypt option lurking for us. There's always an Egypt option. It looks good. It looks fertile. I can take control of my life. This is better than what God has for me. But beneath the calm waters, there is a reef. There is a shoal that can shipwreck your life and your soul. What is your Egypt option? But let's turn to Abram. Let's turn to Abram. And let's see how we respond to this guy. Now, this case, this is almost out of central casting. Abram in chapter 16, is all, he's like a caricature of the modern man. Successful out there in work, but totally passive and checked out at home, okay? In his professional life, he is massively successful. Chapter 12, we see he's daring. He's willing to take bold risk. Chapter 13, we see that he's wise and generous. He's able to divvy up the land with Lot. In chapter 14, we see that he's brave. He takes 318 men and he rescues his his nephew Lot. People look to him to lead. They follow him. He protects people. And in chapter 15 and throughout, Abram is a man of great and deep faith. That's his public life. But when it comes to his home life, he's willing to do whatever it takes to keep the peace. His wife comes up with a colossally bad plan that lacks faith. In verse 3, though, it says, Abram listened to Sarah. He goes along with the plan. He's unwilling to confront Sarah because he wanted to keep the peace. And I don't want to go into too much depth about this because the audience, the children in the audience, but it appears that he wants pleasure in this as well. There's some innuendos here in the Hebrew. But then he goes through with it, he goes into Hagar, Hagar ta- he takes Hagar, and then Hagar gets pregnant. And the domestic tranquility is shattered. Hagar despises Sarah, Sarah resents Hagar, and Sarah turns on her husband Abram. So what does he do? He's already messed up once. What does he do? Verse 6, he basically abdicates. He fails to protect Hagar from Sarah. Let me be clear about this. This is painful to say because I have, he's a hero. Abram's a hero of the faith. But Abram's treatment of women was atrocious in any generation. Okay, we saw a couple chapters ago that he, to save his own hide, and he's going to do this again in chapter 20, he's willing to give up his wife. And here he uses Hagar, then casts her aside when it's no longer convenient to him. This is quite unsavory. It's actually a bit hard for me. I have so much respect for Abram, the father of faith. But hear me clearly. If we clear, clean Abram up, if we put, I don't know if they even still do this. Diane will have to tell me afterwards. Like when I grew up, we had like the flannel board in Sunday school. Like like whenever, the the flannel board to me connotes like just these perfect pictures of, of these biblical characters. But if we want to put Abram on this flannel board of Sunday school class and clean him up, whitewash all his flaws, our faith will never be authentic it will either become judgmental or hypocritical you know we say here about every month or at least every quarter the great quote from jack miller that the gospel is this that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine and you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope and that's true but it's not just true for you it's true for the person sitting next to you right now, and it's also true for our heroes, including Abram. You know, we saw last week that Abram was radically accepted and loved by God. Well, we see this week that Abram was more wicked than you and I can imagine, casting aside this woman, unwilling to protect her, use her and then throw her aside. Alice and I, my wife and I, we watched, a, uh, we watched a Tom Hanks movie this week. And Tom Hanks, he kind of plays the, every, same, was the same character in every movie. He's like America's dad, right? And I, as I was watching, I was like, he never plays a bad guy. He never plays a villain. I mean, I th- and I think secretly we kind of all think we're you know Tom Hanks characters, right? We're basically good people. You know, we're Forrest Gump or Fred Rogers. And we think Abrams like that. So I actually went a step further. I actually Googled I, Tom Hanks, good guy. I just I was like... And I found this interview he did with an Australian paper several years ago. And Tom Hanks basically said that he's not willing to play a villain. And it's not for all the reasons he says, it's just not in me. But he also wanted to say it's because when he was young, he learned that the way for him to get ahead, to get an advantage, was to seduce and manipulate people with his charming personality. I love the honesty. Tom Hanks is saying, I'm manipulating you. I'm seducing you which is to say that Tom Hanks the man knows that he's not as good as Tom Hanks the character. He admits in his real life that he is a manipulator. A couple of applications. First, are you willing to face your shadow side, even the ways that you use your personality to interact with the world to your advantage? This is not going to totally make sense, and some of you need to challenge me and talk to me about this afterwards, but at some level, Christian growth, you have to learn to repent of your own personality, your way of interacting with the world, because we all come into the world, even with the way we enter a room, in a way that we're going to try to turn it to our advantage. The way that Tom Hanks talks, but we all do that. And if you don't admit that about yourself, you'll never fully understand the gospel. And if you think that you, that if, you know, if you, you must realize. Let me say it this way: If you must realize that, given the right circumstances in time, you would do the same thing Abram did. As awful as it was. And if you don't believe that about yourself, you'll never fully understand the gospel. It'll never get deep down into your soul. I was talking to a friend a while back about a pastor who had uh, fallen into grievous sin and shipwrecked his faith, his family, his church. It was, it was really bad. And, and uh, my friend said, he said, I would never do that. And I just be, be careful what you say. When we see other people fall, do terrible things like Abram does here, it ought to scare us for what we are capable of. So that's the personal application. Let's talk about this corporately just a second. I want you to remember this. At this moment, Abram and Sarah, in all the world at this moment, they, they are the people of God. They are the church at this moment. And it's their behavior that drove Hagar into The wilderness. It's their behavior. The church of God drove Hagar into the wilderness. You see, the biggest obstacle most people have to becoming Christians is the church. In the church, we should be a place where broken people can find fellow strangers, strugglers, who will support them and encourage them, not judgmentalism and self-righteous. You know, I think about that great, I was reading this morning, uh, about God's call to us to care for the widow and the orphan abram didn't do that this is a widow and an orphan and he does not care for her so we've seen the impatience of sarah we've seen the cowardice and the pleasure seeking of abram let's look now to hagar so we see hagar she treats is treated horribly by sarah and she flees verse seven towards egypt to sure now she's a strong and defiant woman she is no angel as, as her son will be verse 12 a wild donkey of a man she is strong Uh, But she's pretty remarkable. Let me highlight two things about Hagar. Uh, The first is this, verse 8. God calls her by name. And I read one one of the commentators said something remarkable. In all of, not just the Jewish scriptures, but in all the ancient Near East, this is the only time that a woman is directly addressed by the deity. It's fascinating. But second... In her position of powerlessness, in her position of no privilege, lacking privilege, this allows her to see something that others, in this case, Abram and Sarah, don't see. Namely, that God sees her and has compassion. She's able, because of her destitution, because of her plight, she's able to see things that other people aren't able to see. Stephen talked about this. At the angel's command, she names her son Ishmael, which means God hears me, but she's not done yet. God hears me is the name of her son. Then she gives God a name. I love, who gets to give God a name? She gives God a name at the end of verse 10. El Roy in the Hebrew, or here. You are a God of seeing. But she doesn't stop there. Then she calls the well where all this happened, Be'er Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. It's her destitution that allows her to see what Abram and Sarah can't see at this moment, and that is that God sees Hagar. God hears Hagar, sees and hears her. But that's not even the most remarkable thing in this passage. The most remarkable thing is that at the end of verse 13, it indicates that she has seen seen God. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord and spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. We've talked about that. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who looks after me. Now, honestly, that phrase is a little embarrassing for commentators. What can that mean? Because God says in Exodus, if you know the Bible, you know that God says, no one can see me and live. And yet here is Hagar saying, he has seen me, and I have seen him. What does it mean when she says, I have seen God? I don't know. I really don't know. But at the least it means this. Hagar has a palatable sense of the reality and the presence of God. At the risk of name-dropping, I was on a Zoom call with about 10 other pastors and uh, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, uh, last week. And some of you may know, if you kind of follow social media, Tim has been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, which is most likely... Uh, going to eventually kill him. He did say on the call uh, that he is doing quite well uh, at this moment. Um, but, it, you know, this is likely what will be will kill him. Ho- hopefully it's years, even decades in the future. But, you know, death and the prospect of death is the ultimate loss. It's the ultimate loss of privilege and of power. And one of the other pastors on the call said, what have you learned from your diagnosis? And he said, first something about focus. It's easy when the prospect of death wonderfully concentrates the mind. You're able to say no to things. But he also said, communion with God. He said, I wrote a book on prayer. But my communion with God was not sufficient for my trial. I needed a sense of the reality of the God of heaven. He said, it's so easy for God to remain abstract, an idea And when our lives are easy, it's so easy for God to be just an idea. But he went on to say, I have learned this. The sense of God's presence is real and available. The sense of God's presence is real and available. What is he saying? He's saying, I have seen God in some sense. The sense of God, I love both phrases, real and available. Friends, if like Hagar, you are being ground up by life and you're in a wilderness, I say with all pastoral gentleness, like Hagar, don't miss this opportunity to draw near to the God who sees you. (laughs) Don't miss this opportunity to see him, the one who sees you, and if you're listening and You're checking out Christianity. You're not sure what you believe. You're interested, but you don't believe. And you're wondering, what is he talking about? A real sense, a feeling of God? What is this? Is he uneducated? Let me just say an experience of God's reality. You can have it. It is real. All you must do is believe. You see, friends, he sees you. He hears you. You can see the one who sees you. And this brings us to the great character, the fourth character in this story. The one who is called the Lord. The one who Hagar names, Elroy, Elroy, The God who sees me. Now it says here, the angel of the Lord. And it's hard to know exactly what's happening here when the angel of the Lord shows up in Genesis. Because the angel of the Lord appears to both be distinct from God... ...and the same as God. Whatever the case, if distinct, the angel of God reflects his character and does his bidding. I think it's safe to call them or to refer to them simultaneously. Because I want you to notice, though, the contrast between God and the other characters in this story. Abram listens to and obeys the voice of his wife. God listens to Hagar. Sarah saw Hagar with contempt. God saw Hagar with compassion... Abram and Sarah send Hagar away when she gets in the way. They treat her as disposable. God goes to the wilderness and, quote, finds her in the wilderness. Abram and Sarah call her servant. They never use her name. God calls her by her name. God calls her by her name. And then he asks her questions. Look with me again at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? And where are you going? Now make no mistake, Sarah is a tough cookie. She's no angel. She's not without fault in this story. And God doesn't actually, I love this about God. He does not overlook Sarah's sin of rebellion, Hagar's sin of rebellion. She, Hagar's sin is fleeing from the covenant uh, oversight, the covenant home of Abram. So God calls her to prison. He shockingly tells her to submit and go back. There will be no blessing for Hagar apart from Abram. But every turn, God is gracious to Hagar. It's one of the study Bibles I own says he looked, the Lord looked after the oppressed, he redeems human error, and he protects the wrong. <laughs> That's why this story's in here. Because it shows us the character of our God. Yes, we see the failures of Sarah and Abram. Yes, we see the plight of Hagar, but this is about the character of our God, who is so attractive, who is so marvelous, who is so tender, who is so Powerful. Have you seen this God? Do you know this God? Because, like, whether you are like Sarah and you're waiting for God for something, or whether you're like Abram and you just want a little comfort in your life, or whether you are like Hagar and you're in a desperate plight, turn to this character, turn to God. The God who sees, the God who hears, the God who cares. Because, friends, He is real. And he is available. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that you are real and available. We confess that too often we don't, that you are an abstraction, that you are an idea. We pray that we would draw near because you're available and because you're real and find you, the God who sees us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen.